40 years ago, Iraq and Iran went to war. Conflict dragged on for eight long years, taking an estimated half million lives. When it was over, both countries and the Middle East were changed. Ben and Ben Talablu, a senior fellow at FDD, a native Farsi speaker who has been studying the region intensively for years, will talk to us about this not well-remembered war and its fallout here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Benham, thanks for joining us. The Iran-Iraq war broke out on September 22nd, 1980, which was just one year after the Islamic revolution in Iran. Saddam Hussein hadn't been friendly with the Shah, but he also didn't care much for Ayatollah Rala Khomeini, the leader of Iran's Islamic Revolution. And American hostages were still being held in the U.S. Embassy, which had been seized in November of 1979 by Khomeini's followers. So this was an, this was an odd and inter- an interesting context in which this war broke out. Talk about this time and, and, and the various forces at work here. I and really, most importantly, how Saddam saw Khomeini and Khomeini saw Saddam. You know, Iraq and Iran really lived up to the definition of rivals in September 1980 uh, when Iraq invaded Iran. Uh, Iran, led by, as you mentioned, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, had just overthrown two and a half millennia of Iranian monarchy, um, had moved from an, a nationalist to an Islamist disposition. Khomeini's claim to fame was that this disposition was actually global, that the Iran's revolution actually was borderless. Uh, and if you remember, uh, Khomeini had lived in Iraq, which was Ba'athist in the 60s, 70s, and all the way 80s, all the way into 2003 to the Iraq war. And that meant that they were secular, they were socialist, and they were nationalist. And in many ways, these were two drastically conflicting ideologies, as you mentioned, drastically conflicting ideologies with the Shah and drastically conflicting ideologies with Khomeini's. When the Shah had banished or exiled Khomeini uh, out of Iran, Khomeini went to really one of the, the Shiite holy centers of the world in Najaf in Iraq. And over there, he began to cause problems for Saddam Hussein's regime too. And the issues he had with the Shah's authoritarianism and, and the Shah's nationalist message, he also began to frame as issues with Baghdad's overreach, Baghdad's socialism, Baghdad's nationalist message. So in many ways, uh, Khomeini planted the seeds of Saddam's enmity towards him before he even came into power. And when he did come to power initially, the Iraqi state did view this as a positive development. After all, they had a lingering border dispute that the Shah had forcibly renegotiated his way in 1975. Saddam had issues with the way this border was drawn. 
Saddam had issues with the way the Shah in mid to late 70s had weaponized the Kurds. There's an entire history there that we're not going to get into that was a secret CIA Mossad Iranian operation to use Iraqi Kurds against Saddam Hussein. Most importantly, in 1980, Iraq saw threats from revolutionary Iran on the rise because there was an attempted assassination of Iraq's foreign minister traced back to Iran. Khomeini himself, as well as several other revolutionaries, began to point to Iraq as the next place where this revolution should be taking place. As the Ba'athist leaders in Iraq saw the late Shah's military begin to crumble with defections and with uh, mass executions, they thought that what a time to deliver a blow to a country which has housed different leaders, both of which have been hostile towards us. They began to weaponize pan-Arabism, which is part of this Ba'athist ideology to do so, refashioning itself as this defender of Arab causes. Saddam presented himself as the bulwark against a rising Islamist revolutionary Iran. And as you mentioned, on September 22nd, 1980, there was a tank thrust and aerial bombardment into Iran. And that really set the scene for the eight years of bloodshed to come. Saddam's ambition was it just to weaken the Islamic revolution, weaken Khomeini and take and readjust the border and take some islands? Or did he think, maybe I can actually rule both Iraq and Iran? It would be hard for him to rule both Iraq and Iran when you consider that he was a Ba'athist and a Sunni. Those are in slight contradiction, but not so much really. And of course, majority by far Shia and majority Persian. He only has a small Arab minority. He was a Sunni and he did command and was the dictator of Iraq, which is a country that has a Shia plurality and a large Kurdish minority and thought, that's okay, that's what a dictator does, I'm in charge. In other words, what were his his ambitions, his concept of victory in this war? I think Saddam definitely wanted to deliver a blow to a state which had long been a thorn in its side. Iran saw Iraq as a country to keep your eye on, both in terms of economic development. You know, Iraq too was flush with oil revenue, as well as a rival hostile ideology as well as a source of supplies by a rival great power. You know, Iraq was being supplied by the Soviet Union. Iran was being supplied until 79 by the United States. So, you know, both countries had these views towards each other, but specifically Saddam, he wanted to invade Iran southwest, which is Arab heavy. That's the the province called Khuzestan. It's also, you know, one of Iran's more oil-rich provinces, citing this escalation of Iranian rhetoric and basically what we can now call terror activity or support for terrorism, uh, as well as that shield that we talked about himself fashioning for the defender of Arab causes. You know, the, the drive into that southwestern part was likely either a bid to take that territory, seize that, annex that territory, make that richest, most ethnically compatible part of Iran, part of Iraq, and then negotiate from a position of strength. You know, there are actually declassified uh, uh, after the 2003 war documents. I think the National Defense University has published them. A couple of other scholars have come out with them that really have traced uh, the origins and evolutions of this war through Saddam's eyes because of these declassified documents. Um, But what these documents show, and again, I'm not an expert on the Iraqi side, even though there is more English language material on it, is that, you know, Saddam's views change, aims change, and actually there was a consistent inconsistency between political aims, political ambitions, and battlefield effectiveness and battlefield performance 
for Saddam. Things changed. Saddam was highly responsive to external stimuli for the bulk of the conflict. Ayatollah Khomeini said that uh, America had maneuvered Saddam into attacking um, Iran. Did he really believe that, do you think? Or was that just useful propaganda, particularly at home, uh, to make, make sure people were angry and that people had a, a more of a reason to, to, to fight? You know, in, in one of the many gross uh, perversions of history, uh, we actually know through the documentary record that the U.S. had actually warned revolutionary Iran in 1979, uh, all the way into 1980, if I'm not mistaken, through a very small, very limited uh, uh, political program that had some of Iran's Islamist center-right folks in touch with State Department officials, and even twice allegedly, according to this documentary record, briefed by intelligence officials about a mounting Iraqi military threat. Remember, uh, the U.S. and Iran did not become uh, these bitter enemies overnight, even after the 1979 revolution. There were State Department officials who had ties to different factions of Iran's Islamists, different factions of Iran's nationalists. Uh, Iran first had a nationalist-Islamist hybrid government, uh, an interim government after the revolution. And there is, of course, this fantastical documentary evidence of CIA officers uh, giving briefings in Tehran to this uh, government of uh, this, well, this hybrid Islamist national sky, Prime Minister Mehdi Bazargan. Mm. And it was about Iraq making preparations to one day engage in such an operation. So this phrase that you hear, which has come on down from Khomeini, the Shirag Sabs, the green light, America gave Saddam a green light to attack Iran. And then later on, Iranian conspiracy theorists would say, America gave Saddam a green light to attack Iraq, and America gives Israel a green light to do X, and America gives its NATO partner Turkey a green light to do X. This green light theory was built on this falsehood, because in fact, America had warned Iran about Iraq's rising mounting military capabilities and the threat of a possible invasion of Iran. This wasn't a reason for the war, but... I, uh, Khomeini did think and did hope and did want the Shia of Iraq, again, a plurality in that country, to support him, to support the Islamic Revolution in Iran, and in fact, to revolt against Saddam and create an Islamic Republic, as he would call it, or a Shia theocracy, as you and I might, 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 might call it. Um, was, he very, was, was he very clear once the war started in calling on the Shia? Uh, of Iraq, who are Arabs, it should be pointed out, um, to, to rise up and to join with him? And to what extent did they do so? This is an excellent question because, uh, yes, prior to the commencement of hostilities defined by that Iraqi raid uh, into Iran and the, the, the capturing of territory in Iran, Khomeini, as well as several other Iranian revolutionaries, were quite vocal about how the Islamic revolution should be spreading. And in many ways, when Saddam saw Iran's Arabs as a potential natural con uh, constituency, well, Khomeini saw Iraq's Shia as a potential natural constituency for their revolutionary message. Now, 
the weird thing about uh, Iraq and Saddam was that there were at least two to three waves of expulsions uh, of Iraqi citizens, most likely all Shia or mostly Shia, who under the Ba'athist dictatorship uh, in the 70s were expelled from their own country. Many of them moved into Iran, the rest of them resettled into the Arab world. But uh, they were basically accused of being fifth columnists for Iran, even though at that point they weren't. What the historiography of the war shows you is that en masse, the Iraqi Shia, were largely loyal to Iraq. And en masse, the Iranian Arabs were largely loyal to Iran. Now, a big carve-out is that Iran's first proxy, the Badr group, the Badr brigade, uh, was built off of Iraqi Shias who were more loyal to Khomeini uh, than to Saddam. But as a measure of the population, no way. This really, this war was really defined more by national identity than sectarian affinity. And Khomeini's great hope, as because we know the war was prosecuted for eight years, for the six-year part of the war when Iran expels Iraq from its territory and moves into Iraqi territory, which is a very contentious part of the war's history, um, it's built on this premise that if we conquer Iraq, if we go in, if we just decapitate Saddam, and this should sound very familiar to American audiences, we will be greeted as liberators because of this sectarian affinity. Khomeini did, a, did achieve something with, um, with Arabs. And it's interesting because the one Arab nation that supported uh, Iran, the only one, was Syria. Now, the Syrian regime under Hafez Assad he was the dictator, uh, and he was the father of Bashar al-Assad, the current dictator. It's a dynastic dictatorship. He was a Ba'athist, um, and a Ba'athist should, you would think, want to show solidarity with a fellow Ba'athist, Saddam Hussein, but he didn't. Instead, he decided, even though he was an Arab, well, and even though he was um, and he's an Alawite, uh, which is a which is a minority, which is seen as people say is a splinter of Shiism. Uh, it seems to me that if, if Alawites were in Iran under the, under Khomeini or his successor Khamenei, they'd be seen as heretics rather than um, uh, but then allies. But in any case, it's interesting that at, that, that this that at this point the Syrians who are Arabs. Um, and who are Ba'athists, say no to Saddam Hussein and say, yes, we are going to support Ayatollah Khomeini and the Islamic revolution at this point. Yeah, this is you you really touched on a fascinating international part of this conflict, which is the the quest for alliances and partners. And uh, that bond between Ba'athist Syria and revolutionary Iran remained to this day, and it was forged in the heat of battle. And Sometimes you see this in science labs. A lot of times you see this in political science. Opposites attract and like types repel. Both uh, Hafez al-Assad and Saddam Hussein being Ba'athist, these like types repelled one another. They basically also wanted to compete for the mantle of leadership of the Ba'ath party, of the Arab world. Remember, this experiment is not the first time it's failed in uh, Arab history. Remember Nasser, uh, President Kemal Abdel Nasser of Egypt, who tried to create the United Arab Republic with Syria, trying to use that same ideology of pan-Arabism. Well, within that ideology, states still want to maneuver and compete, and men have their own motivations for leadership, be it personal or political. And a lot of those same 
issues that led to the rupture of the United Arab Republic also led to the hostility between Ba'athist Syria and Ba'athist Iraq. There's a whole series of other reasons, I'm sure, but this is one key thing to remember, that sometimes like types repel. And that was definitely taken advantage of by revolutionary Iran. And in fact, uh, not to jump too far ahead here, was instrumental in Iran using the war to do things that we now know it does today. Uh, During the war, Iran created this terror group, which we all very much still suffer from. It's called Lebanese Hezbollah, and it was created on through through Syria uh, because Syria was so permissive of this Iranian revolutionary mission, while revolutionary Iran was still fighting a neighboring state that shared the same political ideology, Baathism, and same ethnic affinity, Arab, as Syria did. A very weird world. Let me digress for a second. Was your family in Iran, uh, members of your family in Iran during this war? They were uh, distant members of my mother's family in Iran, but most of my family left between the late period of the revolution and early period uh, of the war. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, uh, they left uh, in the early, early, early phases of the war because Mm -hmm. I know my my parents, they met and got married and met and got engaged in Milan and then they came to the States in 83. So uh, the war started uh, late 80, um, so probably the early phases of the conflict. But my father was out in Italy since the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, my mother's family, as we discussed on a previous podcast, left uh, after they were able to get uh, my grandfather out of Evian prison. The Arab states that supported Saddam, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the Gulf states, it wasn't because they particularly liked Saddam. It was more because they were, I guess, because they were frightened of Khomeini, um, of his theology, of his ideology. He made clear that he considered monarchies to be illegitimate and an un-Islamic form of of, uh, of government. Um, I, I guess they thought they were backed into supporting Saddam uh, as a lesser uh, of two evils. Is that correct? Part of that, but also part of that was Iran's behavior for the war. You know, in, in many ways, just like Iran today has, uh, ironically, through its imperialism and its spread of the revolution, been a bridge builder between uh, the Arab world and Israel, particularly the Arab states of the Persian Gulf. Back then, it was a bridge builder or at least a facilitator of some ties between what you used to call in Middle Eastern political science the radical republics like Saddam's Iraq and the more conservative traditional Gulf monarchies. Now, what Iran remembers from that war is that the GCC states, the Gulf Cooperation Council, which really uh, it was a political body created uh, because of things like the Iran-Iraq war, really things like uh, you know need for these smaller states to bandwagon together politically, economically, sometimes militarily, uh, and, and then kind of create these uh, ad hoc political organizations. But nonetheless, uh, they had their own views towards Iran as well. You know, today Kuwait is very much of a dove on the Iran issue. Uh, Today, the UAE can be seen as a hawk on the Iran issue. Then the UAE was very much of a dove, if not neutral. Uh, But back then, Kuwait was a huge hawk on Iran. And so this constellation of GCC states sometimes are more hawkish, sometimes are more dovish. Saddam knew that. Khomeini knew that. And Iran's revolutionary leaders today still know that. And that's where they're always kind of trying to hope they can spook or fracture uh, 
these uh, these states into not being unified. Use Qatar against them now during this current crisis. Back then, of course, um, Iran was pointing a finger at Saudi Arabia, saying it's this 800-pound gorilla in the room, doesn't deserve to be custodian of the two holy places. You know, some of the worst language uh, Khomeini ever used late in the war was directed against the House of Saud. Is it naive or is it credible to say that in a sense, this war where you had the Sunni states versus this Shia revolutionary state, that this is an expression of the Sunni-Shia conflict, and that is a conflict that goes back 1,400 years. I think there may be a desire, you know, by some to kind of, through historiography, to recast the war as a war between Sunni and Shia. But in my view, most certainly it wasn't. Uh, the more you had some Arab states join in, the more this became an apparent possibility that uh, you could cast this war uh, as a war between the Sunni and the Shia. And remember, a revolutionary Iran, very cognizant of its different sectarian affinity and ethnic group, basically majority Persian, majority Shia, uh, that leads that country, has always tried or has for a very long time tried to be ecumenical in its outreach to the Muslim world, right? If its revolution is supposed to be borderless, uh, well, here are two things that are very quickly going to put some borders, very quickly going to put some caps on that outreach. So uh, you really began to see the incubation of this propaganda, this anti-Shia propaganda by some Arab states, particularly Saddam. Uh, but it didn't work well. It didn't stick because the predominant theme that was successful for mobilizing more of the Arab world uh, was the national theme rather than the sectarian theme. Uh, the sectarian theme really kicks in with our version of the Iraq war in 2003, starting to talk about uh, you know Iranian encroachment, Iranian imperialism. But there were terms uh, that were used to make Iran not sound uh, not Sunni or not there were there were terms that were denigrating Iran not for being Shia but were denigrating Iran's pre-Islamic heritage like Majusi a reference to uh, the Magi which are the Zoroastrian priests this was a term uh, Saddam and some of his supporters like to use in the Arabic press that these aren't the defenders of Islam this isn't the Islamic revolution this isn't the Islamic republic these are the uh, heirs of the Persian Empire, and their war against us is very much like the wars that the Persians prosecuted throughout the Middle East and used to control much of the Arab world. In many ways, uh, the victory arches that Saddam built for his quote-unquote victory in Baghdad, those swords, uh, were called by you know pro-Bath folk <laughs> in Iraq uh, before Saddam was deposed as Saddam's Qadisiyah. Qadisiyah is the battle where Muslim armies overtake imperial Iran and they basically make Iran or the Persian Empire then a, a Muslim state. So Saddam began to these were Muslim, But these were Arab Muslims, it's important to point out. So there's an Arab exactly Compet at least competition, if not conflict, inherent in that, right? The idea that, again, they were, yes, they, 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 they made a Zoroastrian country into a Muslim country, but they didn't make it into an Arab country. Exactly. And then Iran used the reverse, obviously. So Iran is claiming this mantle, this ecumenical mantle. So they frame the war as a war between truth and falsehood, haq and batil. And so they said, 
We represent the forces of truth. They represent the forces of falsehood. Never mind that so much of the pageantry, so much of the the support, at least on the popular level initially, when Khomeini used to say, we are a nation of martyrs, that was tapping into a very specific brand of Shiism, a a brand that Khomeini benefited from and used and abused to deliver young men to their deaths at the war front. But uh, at the macro level, the propaganda was not Shia. It wasn't uh, to drive to create what we see the Islamic Republic doing today, which is a Shiite foreign legion. It was a drive to be part of this larger battle of truth against falsehood. And uh, if I may do a small pivot, Cliff, with uh, this phrase, truth against falsehood, uh, I I had an article just come out today on on the impact of the Iran-Iraq war. Would I begin it with this quote? And this quote is, war, war until victory. It's a quote attributed to Khomeini, but uh, sometimes attributed to a lot of other revolutionary leaders as well. It was basically what Khomeini, the founding father of the Islamic Republic, promised. And it was what revolutionaries chanted, and it's really what they believed, uh, this phrase, war, war until victory. There's a video of Khomeini late in the war talking about war until victory not being sufficient. Mm. It's war until the uh, riddance of fitna or the riddance of discord or the riddance of sedition. So in this way, Saddam, uh, sorry, in this way, Khomeini frames the Iran-Iraq war as being one battle as a part of larger battles in this war of truth against falsehood in which revolutionary Iran is allegedly the mantle of truth. Eventually, Iraq did begin receiving support from the U.S., uh, from Western European countries. Uh, and the Soviet Union, interestingly, also supported Iraq at this point in large measure, I think, in response to the clerical regime's purge of Iran's Communist Party, uh, the Tuda, so that uh, so that at a certain point, um, the Islamic Republic was fairly isolated and, and Saddam Hussein had fairly widespread support. In many ways, the conflict did internationalize. I like to use this war, as you mentioned, because as a result of some of revolutionary Iran's actions, the way it prosecuted the war on the battlefield, the way it continued, as you mentioned, to crack skulls at home, this affected how other countries began to see this contest uh, in the Middle East. There's a, a quote attributed to, I think, both uh, Prime Minister uh, Begin and, of course, to Henry Kissinger. Uh, I think it's unclear still who said it first, but about the Iran-Iraq war, it's a shame they both can't lose. But in the moment, at at that period of time in in history, when uh, you see a rising revolutionary Iran, there were some states who wanted uh, Iraq to be able to stem it, first some of the regional states. And then when revolutionary Iran repels Iraq and invades Iraqi territory, well, that drastically changes the optics. And it really does look like in certain battles, when Iran does things like take the Fa Peninsula and then begin to uh, try to besiege Basra, Iran's, Iraq's major southern port city, uh, dynamic could very, very, very quickly change because you can take Fa, then take Basra, and then threaten Baghdad, and that would be basically the end of the war. Um, and it's very much in this way that the U.S. Uh, got involved. If uh, People who are familiar with the documentary record know, of course, of the, quote, tilt towards Iraq. You know, there's all these articles that in 2013, 2012, with more documentary evidence coming out, talk about allegedly the CIA helping Saddam gas Iran. I wouldn't go that far, but Saddam, of course, did use chemical weapons against Iran. What did happen is that the U.S. provided tactical 
battlefield information, battlefield intelligence, and then not throw up any qualms about the type of weapon Iraq did use uh, for some of the, these, you know, these battlefield maps, this battlefield real-world mm-hmm. intelligence that was being provided. But when it comes to arms, yes, the Soviet Union was an outsized supporter of Iraq, really from the beginning, you could say, because Bathist Iraq was already tied to that Soviet orbit. This constellation of support didn't mean that Iran had zero foreign support. Uh, it's, of course, during this uh, time that Iraq, Iran goes abroad illicitly and procures uh, the, be- the beginnings of its ballistic missile program. Uh, Iraq, Iran builds ties with uh, Gaddafi's Libya and North Korea, and there are missions to those countries uh, to ultimately be able to stand up Iran's own missile arsenal. Uh, there is an IRGC, an Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps commander, who really makes his name during this war as the father of Iran's missiles. Rather than take every scud he procures from abroad uh, and fire them at Iraq in response to Iraq's volleys of missiles, uh, he recommends keeping some behind, reverse engineering, looking at the mechanisms in these systems. And that type of thinking is what made Iran today into uh, what multiple American directors of national intelligence have called the home to the largest arsenal of ballistic missiles in the Middle East. Uh, that, in many ways, was a response to this isolation you mentioned. They felt, uh, while they like to say the world aimed, uh, aims to arm Saddam's Iraq. A, a few, let me mention three other things that seem to me significant that this war gave rise to that I want you to comment on. One is it was during this war that the Ayatollah Khomeini founded Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the Pasteran, initially as a paramilitary organization. Two, Qasem Soleimani began his career as a soldier in the Revolutionary Guard Corps, the Pasteran, the IRGC, um, in this period. And three, the Basij was created. You'll need to tell people who don't know what the what the Basij was and, and be, what it became. Sure. Ultimately, uh, revolutionary Iran uh, benefited from this constellation of support internally, meaning the clerics who were leading the country now uh, had support from different armed groups in different cities. And these armed groups were called comites, basically the Persianized version of the word committee. These were armed brigands. Uh, who were zealous believers, and they were often tied to a local seminary or a local religious institution. And this model, uh, which some scholars have talked about, particularly uh, in this book from, I think, two or three years ago called Vanguard of the Imam, uh, the name of the scholar eludes me, but this tie between religious institutions and local brigands uh, basically becomes the basis for the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Now, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is created and really used during this bloody eight-year war, uh, which Iran calls the sacred defense or the holy defense, uh, because of this phrase that Ayatollah Khomeini happens to utter about the national military, because the national military is not dissolved. Uh, Iran basically takes these armed brigands, these armed thugs, gives them more cohesion, gives them more cohesion, and makes them into a military unit and they become the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, from thugs to military men. And these military men, these newly formed military men, um, had coordination issues during the war, 
uh, with the Artesh. This is Iran's national military created by the last dynasty of Iran. And the phrase Khomeini used, and it's a pejorative phrase, uh, to slander the Artesh because of fears he had of a potential coup uh, against him by Iran's national military while this eight-year war was going on, was that the Artesh has the Shah in its blood. Mm. That you couldn't trust this institution. It is by design a monarchist institution. It is by design like any other 1960s, 1970s U.S. military assistance mission dependent military. It is designed to procure weapons from advanced Western countries. It is designed to replicate Western warfighting methods. It is designed to keep uh, pro-West leaders in power. He was skeptical of this institution to its core. And this skepticism, coupled with the skepticism of several other clerics, led as well as their love of interventionism, led to the creation and, more importantly, cohesion of this group, which lots of young men joined into, particularly from provinces, one of which was none other than the individual you mentioned, Qasem Soleimani, who went on to become uh, the commander of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard or Quds Force. That's the, the Jerusalem unit. Uh, if you will. Uh, That is uh, one of Iran's five branches of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, another branch of which is the Basij. uh, You can consider it um, more of a paramilitary, um, even though, according to official doctrine and and analysis, the Basij is part of the ground forces. It's part of the army of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. It's a paramilitary uh, that is tied into so many social charities, that basically is designed to punctuate and permeate the Iranian civil society life to make sure that nothing can ever really rise up uh, against the against the the regime from the street level, from the society level. Uh, but during the war, these individuals, besieges, paramilitaries, pastars, which is the word for guardsmen in Persian, uh, are deployed uh, at the battlefields. Uh, in an oftentimes some had preferential treatment because again, this distaste for the Artesh, this distaste for the national military by the ruling elite uh, in Iran. But it's this cabal, this group that after the war really dominates Iranian politics, Iranian uh, uh, economics, and perhaps most importantly, Iranian national security strategy. And of course, we yeah, today the IRGC, the, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, is is the most powerful institution. We believe it's very much uh, answerable to and loyal to the supreme leader. Though there is there has been talk that at some point it might decide it, it doesn't need the supreme leader. It can do it, what it wants to do on its own. It has enormous economic power as well as military power. And the Quds Force, we should point out that uh, Qasem Soleimani led, is expeditionary and interventionist. It's 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 meant to operate outside the borders of Iran, extending the res- revolution. Uh, whereas, for example, the besiege, again, it's on, it's on every, I guess, on every street in every city in Iran, making sure that uh, dissidents are, are, are not rising up. Uh, but all, and all this came out of, came out of this c- conflict. 
Exactly. The, the creation and the cohesion of these groups and then their intervention into Iranian public life after the war uh, is something that we cannot understate. That the, When you have this national security emergency going on, and if you're an authoritarian Islamist leader, you're going to use that to consolidate power. And the regime killed political opponents at home. Uh, even though the revolution came in with this broad coalition, it exceptionally marginalized, exceptionally narrowed that coalition, uh, basically got rid of leftists, got rid of constitutionalists, got rid of nationalists to produce the regime that we know today. And as you rightly mentioned, Cliff, the IRGC is that that predominant institution and its veterans punctuate Iranian life at all levels. You know, even Ahmadinejad, uh, Iran's previous president, had uh, ties to the Basij, for instance. So there's there's touch points across Iranian politics. It's not just veterans of the war that matter for this study of Iran today. It's veterans of the IRGC specifically and their careers and what they say and what they do and who they meet with and their networks that has made Iran what it is today. In many ways, I'd like to say the Iran that we know today is more a product of the Iran-Iraq war than the Islamic revolution. We can talk about lots of leaders, uh, names who some people with a little bit more of a historical orientation may know. Ibrahim Yazdi, Sadiq Potsadeh. These guys are nobodies now. You know, they, The revolution did a 180 on them. The people that made Iran into what it is today, the revolutionary revisionist regime, and kept it that way, uh, are very much intertwined with the IRGC and can very much tie their origins not to the start of the revolution, but to the start of the war effort. So an estimated 500,000, half a million Iraqi and Iranian soldiers were killed. A uh, number of thousands of civilians, I'm not sure we know the exact number. It, 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 it's been called the deadliest conventional war ever fought between regular armies of developing countries. How did the war eventually end? This is a, a, a loaded question because in Iran today, when the, when the war ended uh, formally with uh, Khomeini, uh, he accepted this older UN ceasefire proposal that was United Nations Security Council Resolution 598 uh, for a ceasefire. Um, it touched off or triggered this larger war about who done it. You know, who did you side with then and where and why? And why did you fight the war this way? Uh, the IRGC against the national military, uh, clerics against lay politicians, clerics against the IRGC, this diverse factionalism that we always hear about. Now, that doesn't mean moderates, but it means more pragmatic folks versus folks who wanted to continue the war versus folks who were even more hardline. This constellation of elites in the Islamic Republic have always fought over how the war ended. What we do know empirically, however, uh, and not as a result of those, those debates, but empirically, is that in 1988, Iran really was losing the war. Militarily, objectively, you could say that. That's a result of a couple of things, of course, the Iraqi increased use of chemical weapons, the Iraqi increased targeting of civilian centers with ballistic missiles. This was this thing called the War of the Cities, when Iraq and Iran would lob projectiles at each other's population centers intentionally. Uh, this is the kind of conflict uh, this is. This is like World War One in Vietnam rolled into the Middle East when you want to talk about the impact on, a, on the psyche of a state. Um, Iran had lost battles to the U.S. military in the Persian Gulf, got its nose bloodied, got its fleet basically destroyed very quickly. Um, 
uh, under President Reagan there. Uh, Iran was contracting massively economically. Again, oil output, very low economic, macro, macroeconomic contraction, very tough times, rationing of foods, food stamp, the whole, the whole cabal. It was a national war effort. Every family really felt uh, the impact of the war, materially and immaterially. And then, of course, society-wise, this nation of martyrs that Khomeini liked to tout really didn't exist by the end of the war. This willingness to run across minefields, these poor children with plastic keys made in Taiwan who thought they were the keys to heaven, um, you didn't have as many of them. They didn't feature as prominently late in the war as they did in the early and middle periods. Uh, And some of Iran's revolutionary elite began to take note, particularly this individual who's uh, sometimes called the shark of Iranian politics, uh, and he passed away in 2017, Rafsanjani, Ayatollah Rafsanjani. And uh, he was instrumental uh, in kind of helping bring about the end of the war through factional politics um, by asking, for instance, the head of the IRGC to produce a list of things that he would need. And on this list, of course, the head of the IRGC even put atomic weapons. And then he forwarded this list to Khomeini. And uh, Khomeini said, well, we, don't, we can't procure this stuff. It takes too long. It's too costly. Uh, at the same time, of course, you had uh, at that time, Prime Minister of Iran, Musevi. He was, he's the head of the Green Movement in 2009. He's under house arrest. Uh, that individual, um, he had talked about not being able to also fund the war. So a lot of reinforcing data points basically saying the same thing, which is you can't continue on this way. But there is one larger outsized thing that I think we should not forget, because if there is social unrest or the potential for social unrest, if there is macroeconomic contraction, uh, if there is many, many, many battlefield defeats, there is one more thing derived from some of those battlefield defeats. I touched on the uh, conflict between the US and Iran and the Persian Gulf and how very quickly the U.S. was able to signal its strength uh, to revolutionary Iran there and the real bloody nose the regime got in the Persian Gulf. But there was an accident also in the summer of 1988 that when I came across, and, and several authors have found this line, but when I came across that line on the microfilm uh, of uh, the, I believe it was the Jomhuri Islami, which is the Islamic Republic newspaper, or the Etalat newspaper. That was the information newspaper of 1988. And it it has a line from Rafsanjani, and it's in response to this accidental downing of an Iranian civilian airliner uh, by the U.S. in the Persian Gulf. You know, the U.S. accidentally thinks it's an F-14 Tomcat, if I'm not mistaken, even though these planes have different signatures, fires on the plane, and all civilians die. It was an Iran air flight. All, all, all the civilians died. Iran always uses the anniversary of that downing to, to talk about, you know, American quote unquote malign <laughs> actions around the world. This is, you know, a regime talking point. Again, these are unfortunate, very, very unfortunate things that happen in the fog of war. But um, especially when you continue to operate civilian airports under the under a, a raging uh, conflict like the Iran Iraq War. Um, but nonetheless. Um, Iran's revolutionary leaders, but in this instance, particularly folks like Rafsanjani, who were more supportive of ending the conflict, interpret the downing of this plane 
as American intervention in the war. And so this final ingredient, this sticky American perception to not let Iran win, congeals in the minds of some. The sticky perception that America would not let Iran win, I should say, uh, congeals in the minds of these revolutionary leaders. And that line that I saw on the microfilm newspaper by Rafsanjani, where he says, America will not let us win this war. And that line really stuck with me. And I'm sure when a lot of other uh, historians and academics discovered this line, that too reinforced this thesis uh, today. And, you know, that thesis was mentioned, I think, in an op-ed by a, a friend of ours, uh, Ray Takia at CFR, when he was talking about John Bolton and, and threats and playing into actually threats that Iran believes rather than running away from them. And in this instance, this accident enforced this notion, which led to the end of the war. I'm not saying the accident was the root cause, but it was one of this cocktail of proximate causes that led to the war's conclusion. And, you know, I kind of mentioned Ray's piece uh, from a few years ago, you know, my piece today kind of talks about a similar cocktail and recreating the conditions of the war. That is going to be instrumental moving forward, because as I've said before, this is the blueprint for war making and peacemaking with the Islamic Republic. And this is really one of the few times in history by ending the war, Iran does a 180 or Iran uh, turns its back on a key objective that it paid in blood and treasure for. So I'm going to ask two questions, um, which will bring us towards the conclusion of this conversation. One is to tell us how the war ended, and I'm particularly interested in your talking about the the, the famous quote, I'm sure you know what I mean, by, by Ayatollah Khomeini yes. when he decided the conflict had to stop. And then after that, talk about what the war did change for the future in terms of the present. We talk, we've touched on that, but anything that we, that we haven't uh, d- discussed about how the war changed the change Iran, change Iraq, change the Middle East and the world. Yeah, I, there's that, the famous line, which and I thank you for reminding me to mention. I can't believe I, I haven't mentioned it yet, which is Khomeini likens accepting this UN-sponsored ceasefire agreement uh, to drinking from a poison chalice. Jam is This poisoned chalice is the, the phrase Khomeini uh, comes up with. Uh, basically saying that this is akin to suicide. This is a, a full pulling of the plug on the mission to export our Islamic revolution to Iraq. And it comes amid this much larger speech that is read out over the radio about how you know Iran is not going to be giving up on its revolutionary mission. But right here, actually, in the here and now, this very material, costly battle, yeah, it's actually going to have to do that. It's actually going to have to admit that it did not win. It did not achieve its war aims. And, you know, this phrase is, is used and abused by historians. It, it's, it's turned on its head by historiographers inside Iran who try to say that, you know, well, the war actually, even though it didn't achieve its aims, it was really a test from God. It was a divine promise. It made the Islamic Republic into what it is today. Uh, Iranian military officials habitually say that the reason we have not had any other war on our territory from the end of that conflict till present is because of the value of our deterrence 
that we created during that war, meaning any country who would try to launch an invasion of Iran would fall into an Iran-Iraq war of their own, and they would pay the price for that. So, you know, this war gave Iran that obsession with deterrence, that hyper-obsession with deterrence, showing the cost in terms of blood, treasure, national reputation that a country will pay for achieving some kind of end. The important thing is for policymakers here, Iran did not achieve its, its end. And I think this has very unique ties into the Trump administration's max pressure campaign because it's trying to get Iran to do another 180. And if I can borrow a phrase here, the art of the deal is how do you get Khomeini's successor, Khamenei, to reach for that exact same poison chalice? That's you. How can you really replicate that pressure? Uh, I can talk very briefly, if, if possible, about, you know, in, in, in much of Iranian political culture, the Iran-Iraq war is always a prop. It's always discussed. It's always being compared to. But seldom are things compared to as being worse than it. You know, in a, in a recent article I have, I document four times in last year alone how the U.S. max pressure campaign, in particular U.S. oil and financial sanctions, are described as being worse than the Iran-Iraq war. The Iran-Iraq war came with all that bloodshed, came with all those bullets and bombs and tanks and lives lost. If you could replicate that pain or grow that pain without having to fire a single shot, talk about an evolution of tools in the national security toolkit. This is, this is a huge thing that no one has really touched on. If this war is really called World War III, in Iran's political parlance sometimes. And now you have guys saying, who are officials in the regime today, particularly the oil minister, that these sanctions are worse than the war. That should be telling us something about sanction success. And that should not be drowned out and that should not be minimized. Because after all, the art of the deal is to get them to do, get the current leader to do exactly what his predecessor did. But his predecessor said something else. He talked about bargaining away his dignity before God. This is about moving an authoritarian leader down the rung, forcing him to accept something that is suboptimal, right? This is what we, the difference between good deals and bad deals. A good deal with the Islamic Republic, given the nature of the Islamic Republic, is not supposed to be a positive sum outcome, a win-win outcome. If the Islamic Republic is winning, you are losing. It is supposed to be a suboptimal outcome for the Islamic Republic. It is supposed to be something akin to drinking from a poison chalice for an Iranian leader. And if it's not, then perhaps you haven't gotten the best of deals. So that's some advice, perhaps, from the pages of history uh, for current policymakers. You know, Cliff, the, the war has touched on so much. Iran resurrected its nuclear program during this conflict. Iran built, as we discussed, its ballistic missile arsenal during this conflict. Iran created Lebanese Hezbollah during this conflict. Iran's first use of drones, which it uses in Syria and elsewhere in the region today, was first in this conflict. Uh, Iran's use of human wave attacks in this conflict. Uh, and if you read very, 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 very carefully into the declassified DIA and CIA record on this war, you even have Iran's first use of chemical weapons, even though Iraq was the serial user and abuser of this. According to those intelligence agencies, in 1987, there were at least one to two instances of battlefield use of 
chemical weapons by Iran. That doesn't excuse any of Iraq's massive uses of it, but it does certainly puncture a hole into this talking point by the Ayatollahs about stockpiling nuclear weapons is haram or using bacteriological weapons is haram or, you know, we abhor WMD and Moss. When states and ideologues are forced to fight a conflict, it looks like they will resort to anything to stay in power. And the way the war was fought by both authoritarian leaders, Saddam's Iraq and Khomeini's Iran, sends chills down the spine of populations today that still live under authoritarian rule. This really devastating Iraq-Iran war uh, that began 40 years ago, um, for the reasons you described, did not lead Iran's rulers to become less bellicose, did not lead them to decide, well, maybe we can achieve our objectives through other than violent means. Um, that wasn't the lesson they learned. Uh, and maybe that goes a long way towards explaining the continuing tension between Tehran and Washington, between Tehran and most Arab capitals, at least those that Iran's re- rulers don't dominate at, the, at this point. Um, we've discussed that with you before and we will again. Uh, until then, thanks, Benham. Um, and thanks to all of you for joining us today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.